You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. great service. We want it highly personalized and we want it just when we want it. And the only way to do that is with a fair amount of data. Hello and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner and joining me is my co-host Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. We got a good show this week. I've got the story of the IRS giving up on location data. Ben has the story of a man wrongfully arrested due to a facial recognition match. And later in the show, my conversation with Fred Kate. He's vice president for research at Indiana University and author of the book Bulk Collection, Systematic Government Access to Private Sector Data. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's uh, kick things off here. Why don't you uh, start us off? What story do you have for us this week? So my story is actually very disturbing. Uh, It comes from the New York Times, and the headline is wrongly accused by an algorithm. And the story is about a man in Michigan named Robert Williams, who was arrested back in January for a crime he did not commit. And Hmm. the evidence used against him was based on faulty facial recognition software. So just to give a very brief backstory, there was a robbery at a fancy store in Detroit, Michigan. Um, There was some sort of grainy surveillance footage that was obtained from the store and sent to some sort of expert, a risk reduction expert, who examined the footage. She captured a grainy image and sent that to the Detroit Police Department. They ran it through their database and found a possible match with this individual. With this match, the software that they used comes with a warning that says this is not probable cause for an arrest. This is simply the first step in an evidentiary chain to arrest somebody. But the Detroit Police Department didn't heed that advice. They assumed that they had probable cause. They arrested this gentleman on his front lawn in front of his wife and two children. He was taken to detention. He was booked, uh, fingerprinted, and held for something like 12 hours. Um, And they presented him with pictures basically saying, is this you, you know, kind of intimating that obviously it is him, he committed the crime. And the guy said, no, look at the picture. It's it's clearly not me. And the cops sort of looked back at him and said, you know what, you're right. And it turns out <laughs> that this whole you. thing, 
Yeah, this whole thing was based on a faulty artificial intelligence system. We know based on numerous academic studies, including some done by government entities like NIST, that facial recognition software is less reliable as it relates to African Americans uh, and other racial minorities just because the sample used to build up a database isn't as high. You don't have as many faces you know, to help build up the uh, artificial intelligence. So we know that it's not particularly reliable. And the fact that the law enforcement in this case pretty much only used the evidence obtained through this facial recognition software to really put this innocent man through a traumatic experience is really eye-opening. And it seems like this is sort of the first time that something like this has happened so publicly. And I think it's a a real moment of reckoning as it relates to facial recognition software. I have a number of issues I want to discuss with you on this. One of which is, why was he arrested? Why was he, we're talking about a shoplifting charge here, a nonviolent crime. Why would the police come handcuff him and haul him away as their first course of action. Why didn't they come and have a conversation with this man and say, hey, we have this picture of somebody who may be you. Hey, where were you on this day? Hey, like, why is the first thing hauling him in, keeping him overnight, locking him up? I mean, that's a a super loaded question. I think clearly they should not have done that. You know, you're not supposed to arrest somebody until you have probable cause. What they did here is show this individual's driver's license photo to the so-called loss prevention contractor who uh, was hired on behalf of the store who had viewed that grainy surveillance footage, she identified him in that photo. Obviously, she did so falsely. And that investigator, that contractor, didn't make herself available for an interview. But that seems to me to be very shoddy evidence of probable cause, uh, especially when law enforcement themselves had seen the photo, had seen that it was grainy, and also should have known themselves that facial recognition is particularly questionable and unreliable as it relates to racial minorities. The other thing I should mention is the kicker of the story is kind of heart-wrenching. This gentleman actually had an alibi because he recorded himself singing a song on Instagram. He was in his car, and this occurred at the exact time of the robbery of the store. Um, He was singing We Are One by Mays and Frankie Beverly, which has lyrics that say, I can't understand why we treat each other in this way, taking up time with the silly, silly games we play. Quite a kicker for the story for what this gentleman went through. Not to get sappy and emotional here on you, Dave. No, no, I think think it all aligns. So again, I'm, I'm trying to understand the legal process here. Would the police have had to have gotten an arrest warrant to bring him in? Not necessarily if they had probable cause. Maybe, you know, they apparently they went to his office or they called him at his office first to try and get him to submit himself voluntarily to the police. And he didn't he wasn't there. He didn't answer. So they went to his house to arrest him. You don't always need a warrant signed by a magistrate judge to effectuate an arrest if you can show that you had evidence that uh, a crime had been committed. And I think that was obviously improperly done in this case. The other thing that strikes me as chilling is this gentleman is sitting in the room with these two police officers. Everybody in the room agrees he's not the guy. And he asks them, am I free to go? And they say, no. They keep him in custody. They release him on a $1,000 bond. Uh, He has to 
come back, appear in court. The prosecutor moves to dismiss, but without prejudice. Now, explain to me what that means. It means he could be charged again? That's exactly what it means. So dismissing a case with prejudice means that in any future proceeding, you could use evidence of a previous dismissal to show that the crime had not been committed. But in this case, the case was dismissed without prejudice, meaning if there was some other piece of evidence obtained indicating that this gentleman had committed the crime, they could instigate further criminal proceedings without having to take into consideration that the case had previously been dismissed. And yeah, I mean, it's really heart-wrenching. He had to pay a $1,000 bond. They said he had to wait in the rain 30 minutes for his wife, all when it's very clear that, that he was innocent. So, you know, you ask kind of how could this possibly happen? It, it's clear from the photos and, and really from what the law enforcement officer said that they knew that it wasn't him in the picture. You know, I think this gets to biases in our in our criminal justice system and, you know, some real institutional problems that, you know, go beyond the narrow issues that are, are brought up by this case. Uh, but you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, there was no justification. The case should have been dismissed immediately with prejudice. The fact that it was not given the uh, exculpatory evidence here is pretty indicative of some deep rot in some of these police departments and in our judicial system. And he had to hire an attorney. He has the, the expense that comes with that. His attorney, Victoria Burton Harris, was quoted as saying that he, her client was lucky. She said, he's alive. He's a very large man. My experience has been as a defense attorney, when officers interact with very large men, very large black men, they immediately act out of fear. They don't know how to de-escalate a situation. Now, in this case, it seems like there was no violence there was no yeah, i mean Thank it goodness. seems like yeah. um right right i mean miss um you know despite his frustration uh, it seems like mr williams was uh compliant despite the absurdity of the situation yeah i mean you just shudder to think of you know what could happen we've seen this happen all over the country with the deaths incident to arrest this was an arrest this was an arrest on a person's front lawn in front of uh, his family And we know that those interactions can turn violent, all for a complete misidentification based on obviously flawed software that should not be used in this manner. They interviewed the companies that developed the facial recognition software that were used in this instance. And they said, well, you know, our technology is not intended to be used to make a final determination on somebody's culpability. You have Mm -hmm. to do other police work, in other words. Right. You know, maybe you find a match here, but you also have to, you know, maybe pull this person's cell site location data to see if they were at the location Mm -hmm. of the crime when it happened or interview other witnesses. And they just didn't do that other police work here. So this person has reached out to the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, The ACLU is obviously very interested in some of the civil liberties issues around facial recognition technology um, and artificial intelligence. And so they've taken a great interest in the case. They've sent a legal document to the police department kind of demanding answers as to what happened. And I'm wondering if the police department might be subject to some civil litigation on false imprisonment. Hmm. Uh, which is a tort in our legal system. Um, that's very hard to prove and is almost never successful because law enforcement officers kind of get the presumption of good faith. <laughs> Perhaps not in this moment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this story comes to us during this very fraught moment in our history is also kind of eye-opening as well. I think the context is very important here. We now have this story 
which is heart-wrenching. We have the decisions that we talked about last week and the week before from some of the large tech players like Amazon and Microsoft saying that they're pausing their use of facial recognition technology for the foreseeable future, at least for the next year. So perhaps Mm -hmm. we really are going to get a reckoning on the use of this technology in law enforcement matters. Yeah, I would hope that the uh, publicity that this case will bring, this article in the New York Times, you know, should be spread around to law enforcement organizations around the country, that the peril that they potentially face by trusting facial recognition software too much. Absolutely. And one thing this article does is it kind of puts a human face on this problem. You know, sometimes we read about these things and they're very abstract, you know, like it's just hard to really conceptualize. But hearing a particular man's story, you know, somebody who had this traumatic thing happen to him in in front of his family, I think just makes it more real and kind of highlights the urgency of the problem. And so, you know, I think that was very well done by The New York Times. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, interesting story for sure. Uh, my story this week comes from the Wall Street Journal. It's titled, IRS used cell phone location data to try to find suspects. It's written by Byron Tao. This is uh, an interesting one. It's about uh, how the IRS revealed to Senator Ron Wyden, he's a Democrat from Oregon, through some disclosures to his office, I guess a routine briefing some of the IRS officials uh, gave to the senator. It came out that they had contracted with a company that provides location data, primarily for marketing purposes. But the IRS had used this data to try to put together cases on folks that they might be after. And, and to be fair, we're talking about folks who might be up to money laundering, uh, cybercrime, drug cases, organized crime, those sorts of things. But what's particularly interesting about it is that the information that this company provides is anonymized. It doesn't give the name of the person. It doesn't give the person's cell phone number. But what it does do is it provides a series of locations. And as you and I have discussed here before, if I have a series of locations, generally it's not that hard for me to figure out who you are because eventually right. you're going to go home, you're going to go to your office, and if Although you keep these doing days, that, I guess I guess most of us are not going to our offices. So right, right. Yeah. But the chances are the place where your mobile device is parked through the night. Yes. And if it happens time and time again, chances are that's where you live. Absolutely. And so what the IRS could do is, for example, if there was a suspicious deposit made at an ATM, they could take that location data, correlate it with other connected data for a particular device, figure out who that was likely, and then use that information on their case. Now, what's interesting about that is because they don't have names and cell phone numbers, According to this article, attorneys at government agencies have concluded that this is not a violation of the Fourth Amendment. This is uh, very interesting, don't you think, Ben? It sure is. So, of course, harkens back to the Carpenter case, which we've discussed ad nauseum on this. I hope our listeners aren't tired <laughs> of us talking about Carpenter, but it is you know, the foundational case in this area. And that case held that law enforcement needs a warrant based on probable cause that a crime has been committed to obtain cell site location information data 
from an individual. Now, what government agencies have taken from that case and they have kind of made into their own interpretation is that type of probable cause determination is not required when you're just obtaining anonymized data. And, you know, I actually think that is a pretty reasonable interpretation of the decision from Carpenter. You know, the Carpenter Hmm. case was individualized. They had a suspect. They tried to figure out whether that suspect was at the location of various robberies. So it was, you know, very specific to that individual here, they're just kind of getting a bucket of anonymized location data and doing, you know, investigative work to match that data to individuals. So I certainly think that is a defensible view of the law. You know, a couple other things about this article that that really interested me. One, it didn't work. (laughs) So the office that engaged or that uh, purchased uh, this service from Ventel, which is the name of the company, said they let the subscription lapse after it failed to locate any targets of interest during the year it paid for the service. So I think it's maybe somewhat comforting for people who'd be concerned about the use of this technology that the IRS was not really able to do much with it. And, you know, one thing that kind of stuck out to me towards the end of this article, they mentioned that the investigators or the Wall Street Journal reviewed federal contracting records. And apparently the IRS only paid $20,000 for access to this platform, which they mentioned is roughly the cost of a single login to the service. So at least as it relates to this company, the use of this was not particularly widespread. It was sort of a pilot uh, to see uh, whether this type of investigative technique, purchasing this data, could be effective. It seems as if it's not, although I guess there's a lot that we don't know about it. Yeah, it's interesting, too. For example, uh, the Department of Homeland Security could use these subscriptions to a service like this for immigration enforcement. They could look for underground tunnels or other you know, illicit border crossings by using this data just to track where phones are going without necessarily knowing the user's identity. Right. I mean, that's what's probably most concerning about this article is maybe some of us don't have sympathy for tax cheats. It depends on kind of your personal preferences as to the moral dimensions of that crime. But it means that other government agencies could use this data for more nefarious purposes. And because we know, as you said, that anonymized data, if it's analyzed by a human being, is very likely to not end up being anonymized, that presents a lot of problems. You mentioned the Department of of Homeland Security, Immigration and Customs Enforcement certainly comes to mind. Even the use by federal law enforcement agencies like the FBI for criminal matters. If the IRS, which is the criminal investigation unit, is charged with tax code violations, is willing to use this software, you know, it kind of seems to reason to me that other agencies would be willing to use it as well. So, you know, we're at this point where it seems like the Supreme Court might have to address this particular issue. We'd have to have a case make it through the lower courts, and, and for that to happen, we need somebody's arrest to be based on the use of this anonymized data so that they would have standing. And so because, you know, there were no arrests, at least in this pilot experiment here, I think we're a long way from that case. But eventually the Supreme Court has to decide whether it will extend its reasoning in the Carpenter case to anonymized GPS data that's sold on a bulk level brought by private contractors. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we will include a link to this article, of course. Uh, And also, we would love to hear from you. If you have a question about uh, privacy policy, send us a note. It's at caveat at thecyberwire.com. You can also call in and leave a message at 410-618-3720. We would love to hear from you. 
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Fred Kate. He is the vice president for research at Indiana University. He's also author of the book Bulk Collection, Systematic Government Access to Private Sector Data. Really interesting conversation. Here's my talk with Fred Kate. I think privacy is all about not being surprised. In other words, it's some sense that you either control your information or you know what others are doing with your information if they control it. And so where do we find ourselves today? Well, I mean, generally speaking, we don't have a lot of privacy in that sense, in that we all use technologies every day that we have very little idea what they're doing with our data. And in many cases, that's not their fault. In other words, they're telling us. It's just we don't care enough. I mean, to be honest. So, you know, when you poll people, they say overwhelmingly how much we all care about privacy. But then when you say how many of you have actually done something to protect privacy, like have you changed a setting on a browser? Have you changed a setting on your phone to protect privacy? It turns out it's actually a pretty small number. But there's an additional complexity, and that is a lot of data uses are not well disclosed, and they're not well understood. So, for example, location information that my phone might broadcast. I think we all have some sense that our phones have location information. We know there's a location, something we can change in settings. We know if we go to a map, it shows us where we are on the map. So, So we must have some sense that there's location. But I think most people don't give much thought to how much information about my location is being transferred and to whom is it being transferred? Yeah, I think there was a lot of surprise when folks found out, you know, their mobile service providers were were selling a lot of that information. And it strikes me that we're kind of in this era now where, and perhaps it's naive of me to think that it's ever been any other way, but uh, I guess what I keep thinking of is just because you can doesn't mean that you should. And we're generating all of this information that people find value in, the ability to sell it. And I guess personally, I find myself scratching my head from time to time thinking, Who thought it was a good idea to gather up and sell this information? But here we are. Yeah, I I mean, I think you're right. I certainly agree with you. I think some of it is really we've been focused so long in our legal systems and in the way we talk about this on data collection. But in reality, it's probably data use is where most of us are actually both most uninformed and most likely to be surprised because – You know, we usually provide data for a pretty good reason. Like I provide a credit card so that I can buy something or I go to my doctor and I tell my doctor something so that my doctor can treat me. What we don't expect is that the data is going to be reused in some completely unexpected way. 
And obviously, it's hard to define what's expected because each of us might have slightly different expectations. But again, I think we've seen this a lot in marketing. It's not really a surprise that if you buy something from a retailer, the retailer then offers you a warranty on it, that they're using Mm. that information to offer you something related. It's probably more of a surprise if they sell that data to an entirely separate third party to do something that you never even contemplated as part of the transaction. Yeah, and and I think a lot of us, you know, had this sense, uh, this sort of promise that that was uh, given to us at the outset of a lot of uh, online retailing and so forth. You know, this would be great because we're only going to get ads for the things that we're interested in. And and again, personally, I thought, well, that's a good idea. Don't waste my time, you know, putting ads in front of me for for things I might not be interested in. But then it seems as though we sort of crossed the line where so many of the things that are put in front of us, we, we can't help feeling a little creeped out by it. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think also it reflects, again, that distinction between sort of what we think we know and what we really know or or our lack of understanding. So, you know, most people, I think, really probably prefer targeted ads. In other words, I'd rather see ads that are relevant to me than ads that aren't relevant to me. But again, I don't want to see ads that are too relevant to me. I don't want an ad that says, I see your recent blood test results show you have a you know low vitamin C. We're going to send you some <laughs> vitamin C. That feels right. a little creepy. On the other hand, the other side feels creepy as well. I can't stand when I see ads and I'm like, why do you think this is relevant to me? Like, mm. uh, like you, you know, a beard trimmer. I don't have a beard. So why are you sending me this ad? And who in my family do you think has a beard? And so mm-hmm. – It's hard. I mean, I actually am one of the few people who actually feels a a tiny bit of sympathy for people who use data in the commercial environment. Because on the one hand, we want great service. We want it highly personalized and we want it just when we want it. And the only way to do that is with a fair amount of data. What are your insights on the policy side of things? Where are areas that you think need some movement, need some adjustment? I think policy is actually in many ways probably the most important area here, and maybe that's because I do policy, I I would say that. But, you know, the technologies we run out and we adopt almost without thinking. You know, a new iPhone, you go buy it. A new new piece of software, a new app, you download it. And so I I think the notion that technology is really going to be our protection here has so far not worked. And part of the reason for that is because even when technology protects us, we will make bad decisions that we will go around those protections. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we saw this when Internet Explorer first introduced the malicious software tool and you know your address bar would turn red and it would say do not go to this website this is known to be a source of malicious software and we know from monitoring behavior that most people click through it they say no i want right. to go anyway <laughs> right and so i think policy is where we should be focused because what we're really saying is what should be the rules the principles and then the ways those principles are implemented that tell people here are things you can do and here are things you cannot do with other people's information or without getting explicit consent if you're going to do something unexpected. So I use a credit card to buy something. Of course, you're going to have to contact my bank. You shouldn't have to tell me that. Don't give me a notice that says the the bleeding obvious. On the other hand, using that information to do something completely unexpected might be something that we either prohibit or we say, no, now you really do have to give clear, explicit notice. These are the types of conditions. These are the types of rules that policy can put in place. And right now, I think policy is a mess almost everywhere around the world. We either have 
too much of it, which I think is the case in, in Europe. We find organizations, mm. you know, tied up with complexities in terms of complying with, you know, GDPR. And, and GDPR is not just, you know, we thought it was going to be the umbrella policy, but it's not. It's supplemented by many other, um, both European-wide and the national laws. So we have a sort of overly complex or overly regulated situation. And you know, in the U.S. and in many other parts of the world, we have what might be an underregulated situation where ambiguity is able to be legally exploited by, you know, law enforcement or by businesses. Yeah, and, and certainly, I mean, here in the States, as we see things are kind of going state by state, uh, rather than seeing something come from the feds, how do you see that playing out long term? Do you think that we can sustain that or will we have to see some sort of federal uh, umbrella policy? Let me say, I've been thinking for two decades we would see a federal umbrella policy <laughs> and I've been wrong for two decades. So you, you probably shouldn't pay any attention to what I think on this subject <laughs> at all. Of course, we should see a, a federal policy. I mean, you know, none of these issues are relevant to deal with state by state. You know, the internet does not respect state boundaries, and very little commerce respects state boundaries. But so far, the federal government has been hamstrung, and right now, it's hard to imagine it being any less hamstrung. And so, what we end up with is a is a de facto form of kind of national regulation that emerges from whatever is the most restrictive state. And generally speaking, that's California in in most mm-hmm. instances. Is there a built-in systemic disconnect where the rate of change that's built into our political system, our policy system, our ability to execute change is mismatched with the reality in the tech world? Is that a reasonable thing to say? Oh, it's totally reasonable and it's completely true. But let me say that's true in almost everything. I mean, there are very yeah. few instances where law gets ahead of a problem. Law mm. or our political system is always playing catch up. We, you know, if there's a recession, we're trying to to lessen its effect. If there's a if there's a health outbreak, we're trying to catch up where the actual biology is of that health outbreak. Technology may present some slightly more exacerbated challenges, and that is they happen on a bigger scale and they may happen faster than many other types of changes we see. But I think we should be expecting law not to get ahead, but we should be expecting law to set frameworks that then are fit, that they are adaptable to new challenges. And so, you you know, in an ideal world, you shouldn't have to change the law that frequently. It's the mm. way the law is applied that will change as the technology changes. What about where we find ourselves at this moment with um, the encryption wars? Uh, I've seen uh, recently uh, some um, apps like Signal have said if if some legislations go through in the in the U.S., they may have to pull out of the market. And we hear you know talks about yeah, outlawing encryption isn't going to keep people from using encryption. What what insights do you have uh, in that debate? You know, I don't know that I have any worthy insights. I actually chaired the National Academy of Sciences' uh, most recent task force that looked at questions about encryption and particularly law enforcement access. And, you know, one of the things that it's hard to get around, but it's also hard to figure out what to do with, is again that we are a global system. And so, you know, the U.S. sort of famously has adopted export controls applicable to certain encryption technologies. And then we discovered that, you know, those encryption technologies were built into almost every product, that, you know, word mm. processing and communications and operating systems, and that people were unwittingly violating the law just by getting on an airplane and, and going someplace with their laptop or their phone. So we, over time, have, have sort of backed away from that approach towards encryption and instead have focused on it more as a sort of a law enforcement or a national security issue, you know, under what conditions 
should um, the government be able to get access. The challenge there is almost any condition in which the government gets access, particularly if it needs it fast. And, you know, the example always uses a kidnapped child. I think we would all be enormously sympathetic to in that situation. If you had the iPhone that said, where is that kidnapped child? You would like to be able to get into it. But to make a tool that gets you into it quickly, that necessarily means you're going to let other people in as well, because there's just no way. I mean, there's no there's no tool, there's no approach, there's no technology that we've seen so far that only lets good guys in through holes in encryption. And then we have to add the complexity of not all governments are good guys, and even good governments mm. occasionally act for bad reasons. And so... Do we really want, even if we all agree that maybe there should be access in the case of the kidnapped child, is there a way to cabin that so we're not also using it to get information on political opponents or on dissidents or on political protesters? These all come together, and then we do have this fact that there will always be a a workaround. You know, there'll always be, if I can't buy the technology in the U.S., I'll buy it someplace else. If if I can't download the software here, I'll, I'll download it somewhere else. And so in that sense, I think we're not getting any closer towards clarity on this issue, other than appreciating that it's maybe a harder issue than certainly law enforcement, but I think also civil libertarians originally thought that it was. With the situation we're in right now with the global pandemic and COVID-19, I've seen commentary from many people saying that one thing we need to be mindful of is that in our effort to combat this and the need to gather data, that we don't inadvertently end up with a COVID-19 equivalent of the Patriot Act, something that perhaps has good intentions at the outset, but then lingers for long beyond when the actual danger has passed. I'm curious, what are your insights when it comes to that? Well, I totally would agree with that. I don't actually see enormous risk of that right now. In other words, Mm. so far, most of our laws, uh, certainly including in Europe, have proven flexible enough to deal with, you know, the issues we've seen from the pandemic so far. Now, I am a little concerned. We're starting to see some proposals out of Europe for laws that would specifically restrict tracking, for example. Well, uh, um, that seems unwise to me. In other words, to say we're fighting a pandemic that we don't really fully understand, and this does not seem the time to adopt a legislative ban on the use of a tool that might be helpful, as Mm. opposed to letting regulators and companies work together, hopefully with consumers involved in that loop, in a way to say what types of tracking would be appropriate. Can we track just for the purpose of doing contact tracing so that if someone you've interacted with in the past 14 days turns out to have COVID, we can let you know or we can tell you you need to now self-quarantine. I think those are the types of things that seem reasonable if we could put in place sufficient protections on either side, if you will, you know, guardrails, so that these don't then become anti-immigration tools or anti-protest tools or something else. And so I do worry always about, you know, the either misuse of technology or the overuse of technology. But I also worry about the reverse, which is sort of the shine away from technologies that could be the very thing that could get us out from quarantine right now. Mm. What sort of advice do you have for the engaged citizen who wants to keep up on these sorts of privacy issues? Uh, what sort of tips do you have? What, what are the, the best sources and, and ways for them to stay up to date? 
fortunately, there are a lot of them, and unfortunately, there are a lot of them. I mean, it's the, it's the <laughs> challenge of having lots of information. Much of it's really terrific. So, first of all, I would say the popular press has done quite a good job, in, including, you know, podcasts like this and, and, and others where you don't have to just be focused on privacy to find it really interesting privacy stories. I, I mean, I read the New York Times and the Washington Post every day, and it's rare that there's not a privacy story in each of them. So, I think that's one place to start. Another is there are a lot of more dedicated sources. It's funny, I actually worry about getting overwhelmed with information. And so I tend to be pretty scarce to what I subscribe to. But on the other hand, I mean, so for example, in a, in a sort of related area, cybersecurity, which I think is critically important to privacy, because obviously if you can't secure the data, you can't, you can't protect the privacy uh, regarding its use. You know, they're wonderful sources. You know, Bruce Schneier, the sort of famous cybersecurity guru, publishes a sort of every three week or once a month newsletter. And that for me, that's great. That sort of captures, you know, three weeks or four weeks of news, puts it all together in a kind of a readable format. And then, of course, there are websites like the Center for Democracy and Technology or the Electronic Freedom Foundation, the ACLU of uh, North Carolina, uh, of Northern California. I should never make that mistake again. Um, <laughs> the ACLU generally. I mean, these are all really good sources of data. Even the Federal Trade Commission has, has quite a good website on privacy issues you know, that rise to the national level. I do think the issue about use as opposed to just collection is really important, and I think we have been myopically focused on collection. Even the Fourth Amendment privacy is applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court's interpreted to only focus on collection. So like once the government collects data from you, if it has a lawful purpose, it can do anything it wants, even if what it later wants to do is unlawful. And that hmm. makes no sense. Like, none of us think that way. You know, again, we tell a lawyer, we tell a doctor, we tell a friend something, and there's an implied or sometimes explicit promise it won't be reused in inappropriate ways. So, so I think that's one really key point here. And then a second one is I do think COVID-19 is really showing us, like, once again, the importance of that balance between letting data be used under appropriate conditions and appropriate controls for things that make our lives better. And if that means getting people back to work or getting us out of our houses, that could have tremendous value. The problem comes down to trusting, you know, is there policy in place and is the policy effective so that we don't worry about it being misused? You know, we don't worry about something untoward happening with the data. And that could include a, a breach and the data is stolen, or that could include the government comes in and asks for all of it because it suddenly wants to, to do something previously un, unconsidered with it. And then just the last thing I'd say, which is, I think there are a lot of tools we have not really explored. We, we've so relied on notice that nobody reads and consent that nobody really appreciates that they're giving that we've not explored other types of tools. And, and one which I've become particularly interested in recently, I don't, I don't have an ownership stake, I don't make any money off this, but things like data review boards. You know, if you think about it, all health research, all research involving humans in this country is overseen by law, by institutional review boards. You know, boards that bring together members of the community with members of the research organization that then mm -hmm. oversee these types of research studies. Are they safe? Are they appropriate? Are they worth the risk? What about if we did something similar around data uses? You know, if we said, look, you've got hard choices to make. Should you collect data on your employees so that you can track them in, in the event of the pandemic breaking out again? 
And instead of just making that decision yourself or just your lawyers making it, how about if you actually had a data review board that would include people from outside of the company or outside of the government agency or outside of the organization, as well as potentially people inside? And this would lead to a more thoughtful discussion. You would get some perspectives broader than just your own. You would document your decision, which might be useful if things go wrong later, and would might certainly be relevant to a regulator trying to figure out if you acted recklessly or you acted you know, in willful disregard, or if, in fact, you thought you were doing the right thing, but maybe you just didn't get the balance right. So there seem like there are lots of other tools. I don't want to suggest data review boards are the only ones that with a little creativity, we could move beyond if i you know if i see another ballot initiative in california that says notice and choice <laughs> for god's sake who who's got time to read those notices i mean nobody reads them and so we just click yes because we want to move ahead and i think we've got to apply the same creativity to the policy side as we've been applying to the technology side all right ben what are your thoughts here very much enjoyed hearing from Professor Kate, and it makes me curious to read the book. Um, I'm sure we'll put information on, on that book in the show notes as well. He's kind of reiterating a lot of themes that we've talked about many times on this podcast, but sort of still remain unaddressed. One thing he talked about is how obviously decisions we make about privacy should be made at the, the policy level by our policymakers. And the real gap we have in this country is that federal policymakers have just not taken the lead on data privacy legislation. And that leaves this sort of bizarre gap that exists in this country where you don't have any federal guidance. And companies are forced to abide by the strictest state laws, which are generally, um, you know, California, New York, uh, the the ones that we've mentioned. The upshot of that to me is that there's really not as much democratic small d accountability. If you're a Wyoming person who's not happy about a tech company's data policies, those policies are developed because of a law that was passed in California by legislators that you did not elect. So I think that that's problematic. And, and I think, as the professor said, it's why you know data privacy is such a federal problem. There are virtually no online interactions that are contained within states, and there's very little commerce that's contained within states, as he said. Hmm. Um, so I think that that's kind of what I, I took away most from the interview. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Fred Kate for joining us, for taking the time. Again, uh, the book is Bulk Collection, Systematic Government Access to Private Sector Data. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>